Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week we're joined by Hannah Anderson, who has a lot to add to the discussion on women's roles in the church. The group talks about how complementarianism should be applied to the church and parachurch organizations differently, and about men's and women's leadership roles. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how to download a free MP3 from the Alliance. Okay, so I'm so excited about our guest today. We have Hannah Anderson with us. Um, She is uh, the wife of the pastor at Brook Hill Baptist Church in Virginia. She's author of the book Made for More, which is an excellent book that I recommend to you. And she's now co-hosting a podcast with Aaron Stranza called Persuasion. Hey, Hannah, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Amy? Oh, I'm hanging in there, doing pretty good. <laughs> Holding your own amidst all of this testosterone. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm here for you. I have the mad woman in the attic with me today, so that helps. <laughs> Amy is under our thumb, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Carl and I tell her what to do, and she just snaps right to it. Yeah. yeah. Not exactly. Just but... fetch me a coffee. Yeah. Very grateful yeah. right, for that. Right. <laughs> we'll let them believe that now. <laughs> Anyway, you've written this article that got us talking that we wanted to discuss with you today, and it's called Complementarian Organizations and Where Women Belong. Um, You kind of challenge in your article how ecclesiology works out in a multi-denominational setting, like a parachurch. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to sum up some parts of that for us? Sure. Um, The conversation kind of got started when a friend of mine had gone to um, Gospel Coalition, the national conference, and she's a complementarian, as I would consider myself. Um, But she also found that she didn't know quite where she fit um, in that context. And we had talked um, privately, and then she had written an article for hermeneutics. And my piece was kind of a way to continue the conversation. And what I have found among my friends is we don't question where we belong in our local church, in our in our own complementarian church. Mm-hmm. We tend to feel at a loss where we belong in this um, milieu of broader parachurch complementarianism, whether it's embodied by conferences or just the conversation online or a a bit even within the evangelical celebrity culture of you have different voices speaking to the question. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you process all that? And so I think one of the underlying tenets that often gets overlooked is that we do have this tension between what's happening in my local church. You know, how is authority and eldership expressed through my local church setting with the tradition that I belong to? compared to um, a parachurch organization that tends to be, would tend to be multi-denominational because with that comes a lot of different definitions of what authority would look like. We have different cultural cues of whether something simple as a woman standing in front of a mixed audience makes her have authority. And so those were the kind of questions I thought needed to be brought to the front of the conversation rather than this simplistic are you complementarian? 
Do you think part of the problem, Hannah, is that uh, the, the very term complementarianism is is not entirely a helpful one in this context? And that if you focus on church and on ordination, that keeps the lines much clearer. As soon as you start talking about complementarianism, you, you're introducing a a much broader cultural category in many ways. And, and that creates, well, that in itself generates the kind of questions that that you're asking. Whereas if you focus on the church is the church, ordained office is for, is for men only, that will create some difficulties in parachurch organizations, but we'll deal with them when they come along. Uh, do, do you think the terminology is is unhelpful. And I don't know if you heard it, but I kind of paused before I said I would consider myself complementarian Mm -hmm. because it's not language I'm comfortable with. Not because I don't agree with a conservative reading of scripture, but that it comes with such a subculture that goes beyond authority in the local church. And so I feel more comfortable saying I have a conservative reading of gender or I have a conservative reading of um, male eldership. And so mm-hmm. I, I absolutely think that the terminology has created a context where we can't even begin to discuss how we will work it out in practice. Like, I feel like it's a self-defeating question. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And so, so not only is there... I, and I think you're absolutely right, some confusion over the term of complementarianism and how it's applied, but also probably confusion over uh, the difference between um, the church and the parachurch. You know, is is the parachurch an ecclesiastical entity or is it something mm-hmm. different? And if it's not an ecclesiastical entity, you know, i.e. Uh, on par with the church, then the application of, for lack of a better phrase, complementarianism probably ought to look different than the way it's applied in a local church. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the, you know, if you call it weaknesses or characteristics of evangelicalism as a whole. I mean, this is our historical, these are our roots, right? Um, We're we're parachurch from the beginning, but all, even within our history. And so this is a tension that I think probably the more broadly evangelical, the more Um, the less you identify with a specific denomination, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to wrestle with these questions because it's just part of the nature of the beast of the the culture of evangelicalism. And so I'm I'm, I'm wondering, and the three of us have talked about this, um, Hannah, a lot. And and so it's it's good to have you here because I think part of, of where there's some wrestling over this recently within broader evangelicalism is because um, a, you know, a, a very large, prominent uh, uh, parachurch m- ministry that has very, very large um, uh, ambitions. Um, perhaps in smaller parachurch organizations, I guess is what I'm saying is is that this would maybe be not as difficult to wrestle through as perhaps a parachurch organization that is doing everything from uh, uh, writing catechisms and. Uh, uh, you know, so, so so a parachurch organization like the Gospel Coalition, for instance, um, that's staked out a very clear position, I think there's still probably some wrestling over the application of complementarianism, and maybe the wrestling has a lot to do with the fact that there's some questions as to whether or not the Gospel Coalition is functionally a denomination or not. Yes, and, and I think that comes up, especially when you're asking, okay, so in our in our national meetings— as let's say you're a, a leader of the Gospel Coalition, you're saying, well, is this a sermon? Right. 
you know, if it's a sermon, if it has teaching authority attached to it, I mean, how much can we allow women into those places? You know, and so it, how the leadership views what's happening in their parachurch organization will affect what women can do in terms of authority and teaching. Yeah, I think there you get to the the distinction I've made a couple of times between a parachurch organization and a quasi-church organization. Mm. Uh, I would see, for example, uh, you know, a seminary, like the one I work for, is a parachurch organization. It very clearly cannot be confused with Mm. the church because we have a very narrow brief. We do one thing and we try to do it well. When you have an organization which is parachurch but starts to adopt things that the church strictly speaking should do then you start to get into to this confusion um, what function does a council fulfill does it have a disciplinary function mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. well if it doesn't have a disciplinary function should it have a confessional function there are all kinds of problems i think that that are not specific to just to complementarianism on this front but actually to organizations that that aren't the church but which start slowly but surely to to become the church if i could put it that way yeah and i think you see that like you said across the board with parachurch organizations that start operating this way and i think the reason it has become a question that i'm concerned with in terms of specifically the gospel coalition is that they have made complementarian vision essential to their identity and so whereas some other parachurch organization may not worry about that. You know, it's not a question for them. It is a question here. And and so to be consistent, they must wrestle through all of these competing dynamics. You say something um, in your article as to this authority issue. You say applications about teaching and authority only make sense in a context of a community that actually possesses authority. Yes. And I thought that was such a good point because... Um, are we diminishing the authority of the local church when we are attaching so much um, spiritual authority to a parachurch organization? And so taking this so-called complementarianism and transferring it into conference um, organizations, then um, are we subtracting really from the true authority that's in a local church? Mm-hmm. But I think you see that paralleled in um, the celebrity culture that arises around certain speakers who become functional pastors for people. Oh, yeah. And so Such a good point. It's not simply it's not a just women's a issue. It's not just a man-woman thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is about the whole understanding of who do you submit yourself to. Mm. And, and that becomes a question for women because we are talking in terms of gender. But it's a question for every member of a local church. Who is the authority in your life? Who is your spiritual mm. authority? Um, and so I, there's a sense of me where I don't feel um, offended as a woman that's a question that's gendered because I also know it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. It, it is a question of can a person speaking from a public platform speak into your life with authority or how do you receive his words and how do you process them? And that's a question we don't do well. Yeah, that's um, something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, Even doing like this podcast, okay, I'm kind of the token woman in one way, but I'm also... In every way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also the lay person. And I think a lot about how I speak for the normal lay person. 
Mm-hmm. And so when you transfer it into uh, other parachurch organizations, and what role does the lay person play in all that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's an opportunity, parachurch, where there can be a lot of great conversation mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. congregants and pastors and professors. Mm-hmm. And um, that should yeah. be a good bridge for us. And so how could we then incorporate that better? Um, and I think it is by not making it um, – having the same authority as a local church would have, or, or to have the image of that, I should say. One way to do that would be to put non-ordained or women into positions of leadership in right. those organizations, right. have women on your council, something uh-huh. like that. And not just on the pink issues, like <clears throat> Hannah right. would call it, right. because yeah. like you know, you can have someone be the, the director of women's initiatives or whatever mm-hmm. for a, a conference or coalition, but um, can she sit on the board? Mm-hmm. Right. Can mm-hmm. she sit on the board and put input in there? Mm-hmm. So there's some really murky ecclesi- ecclesiology issues here, ecclesiastical issues, some really some real uh, murkiness, and 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 I wouldn't find nearly that much murkiness with a with a more typical, if you like, um, parachurch organization, but one that has grown so large, w- which has such um, large ambitions that that's when it really starts to get, I guess, murky because mm-hmm. it starts to feel like a church. Well, let's make it even murkier. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Let's throw the economic side of this in. It seems to me that we are in a we're living in a period of time when uh, women, particularly in a complementarian context, are very marketable. Mm. Uh, Women's books, a lot more books, it seems to me, anecdotally being published by women at this particular point in time. There are women's conferences Mm -hmm. uh, developing in in complementarian circles. There's obviously big money to be made. Uh, These conferences are not put on out of pure altruism. These books are not published Mm -hmm. out of pure altruism. Mm -hmm. Somebody has got to make the bottom line on these things. So the the question then becomes, who decides who gets published and how is that material vetted? I I understand that as 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 soon as writing was invented, you detached the possibility of influence from personal relationships. As soon as somebody can write a letter or write a book, you don't even need a printing press to detach mm-hmm. influence from uh, from personal relationship. But we now live in an era when the relationship between influence and, and personal relationship is virtually non-existent, it seems to me, which does make it an acute question. Who polices this stuff? If it is having an influence, if people in my congregation may be reading Jesus Calling, for example, mm-hmm. who takes responsibility mm-hmm. for this stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so are you asking, is it the publisher or the... I think the publisher certainly has to be part of, this, part mm-hmm. of the solution. Um, but Christian publishing, yeah, I understand they have to make, uh, they've got to make a profit, they've got to keep people in employment, but they also have to understand they have a huge responsibility towards the church. And the same with conference organizers as well. And so what we're saying is that if Hannah will play nice, (laughs) she could get a big Mm -hmm. writing gig Mm -hmm. from from, from a big Christian publishing house. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, Hannah, if you take nothing else away from this, you know, there (laughs) it is. This is how to do it. But that's what I find is insulting, too, in some ways, is... And when you do have women speaking at these conferences, and, and you know many of them are authors who've written a book, um, they're asked to speak about women's issues. Mm-hmm. And so you're already put in this women's issue box. Yeah. And that's all that, you know, it's to me, that's like the value that they have to share. Right. 
And that's kind of a shame because I think women play a huge role in showing the face of Christianity to the whole world. Right. And um, all theology mm-hmm. is, is for all women, yeah. not just yeah. pink theology. Yeah. And, and so there again, the, the, the confusing issue. So when you attend a conference, is the person speaking? Are they preaching a sermon mm-hmm. or delivering a lecture or giving an address? Is this a worship service where a sermon is delivered mm-hmm. or a place where we're hearing an address? And is a woman allowed to give an address or a lecture where men are seated in the audience? Um, this is where it gets And where's really the list confusing. that says what each organization is, is aiming for here in right, that? Because right. that, I, mean, I think that's why all these questions are coming up is, is we don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't know. When I um, first started writing, I felt this responsibility, whether or not publishers or other groups did, I felt this sense of, I have to be, um, you know, theologically sound. I have to steward what I'm putting out. But with that responsibility, I felt a lack of commissioning. I don't know if, Amy, you felt this. You may be in a different context. If, If a man puts himself forward or not, or he feels led or called forward toward a public ministry, there is a channel, regardless of church, to take him and to vet him and to try him. And in that context, it may end up in ordination and whether or not he's actively pastoring, there is a process of commissioning him and saying, as a body, we recognize your gifts, we recognize your qualifications, and we are saying, go with God. Um, As a woman thrown into this publishing context, I felt like it was, oh, great, you've got something to say, say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I wrestled with, you know, my husband, of course, was a great source of um, care. And, and he helped me process through what the Holy Spirit was calling my local church, um, you know, through the prayers of the people there and discerning um, God's leading. But I could see very quickly how detached from a local church body or or even the the channel of commissioning let's not use the confusing word ordination mm-hmm. of commissioning an individual believer's gifting i felt that was very lacking and and that if i could write and i had ideas to put out there it didn't really matter what they were i could mm-hmm. i had this gateway to say just go put it out there so unless i had felt that personal responsibility mm-hmm. um there was nothing else to stop me from just putting stuff out. Mm. Yeah, and then there's the whole um, okay. So when you when you write a book and you put all the work into writing the book and it's published, well, then you know the next step a lot of the time is to go and speak about your book. Mm-hmm. But if you aren't writing for the little niche that's carved out for women speaking, it becomes kind of a, a glass wall. Then, of yeah, where do you take it? Who do you tell? How do you do that? How do you get them together? And um, how do you get the conversation going that you're trying to get going with your writing? Mm-hmm. And I found that my the topics that I had landed on, um, I felt the constraints of you're probably going to be presenting these two women's groups. Mm-hmm. And even though the topics I was writing on were not specifically gendered, mm-hmm. I knew that there were constraints 
where that's yeah. where because your it, book really is a great book for men to read too oh i think so yeah <laughs> absolutely and but, i think that's another huge thing a thing that could be very helpful to say is that you know even books that are um, women's ministry books which are wonderful um to have pastors should be reading those books mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not just for the women in their church to read, but it will help them relate to those women and know the issues that they're going through yeah. and, and see, what they're this, learning. This is really fascinating to me because, um, you know, one of the things, Amy, that you've experienced um, both in blogging and in being on podcasts, and Hannah, I would assume you've experienced the very same thing, is, you know, if a man accidentally you know, here's you say something that's helpful. Have, have we now uh, broken Paul's uh, mm-hmm. commandments? This, and, and this <laughs> right. is where, this is where I think we need to have really clear lines drawn between what Paul um, uh, prescribes for the church mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and everything out outside of that. And, and one of the interesting things was that we, we had pushback saying, you know, if, if, if a man reads Amy's blog, then he's being instructed by her, mm-hmm. And therefore yeah. being disobedient to the scriptures, which seems insane to me. But there are a lot of people, and I think I'm already be- beating them with my nunchucks. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, but I, I think that that's just a, a a misapplication of Paul's instructions for the church. And this is why we need to have clear. Uh, uh, this is why we have to have really good ecclesiology. That this is the yeah. church. This is what happens in the church. And this conference or this parachurch organization is not the church. Mm-hmm. That's the difficult- oh, Go ahead. I was going to say it's a lot easier to fence in eldership in the local church right. than it is to go and try to define all of these specific contexts and yeah. what should you do here and what should you do there. It's almost like, well, if we can establish the boundaries clearly around this office in the local church, we don't have to deal with all of these right. um, hypothetical questions. Yeah. yeah, it's when you bring in the multi-denominational mm-hmm. parachurch, which we do want to communicate you know, with the sure. other denominations well and serve alongside with them when we can, that ecclesiology becomes um, kind of muddled then mm-hmm. because there's different views coming together. And I think that is where there must be, number one, an understanding of denominational difference, which I think is fast fading. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And just the historical pressures that brought different denominations into existence, why they do what they do. I also think it, there is a, a level of liberty that must be extended so that in my tradition, maybe a woman standing behind the pulpit sends a cue to the people within our tradition. OK, she's starting to exercise authority because in the Baptist tradition, this is how it's functioned. Mm-hmm. But to also have the humility to say that may not be the case in a different context. A woman on the platform may not send any cultural cue to them um, because it's rooted in the subculture. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's always important to have a little music stand off to the side. Yes. Right? (laughs) That's what those are there for. (laughs) So true. (laughs) I know. It's kind of easy to talk about all this, but um, how is it, Mm. you know, how can we um, get real change happening with that how what can we start implementing or who can we talk to i mean we're having this little podcast here and um talking about it in this venue but i think part of it has to be it has to come from the church mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think teaching about the importance of the local church and about yeah. finding your identity in the local church is mm-hmm. important it, I see the the sort of the 
the power grabs of the big evangelical organizations as being facilitated by weakness of local ecclesiology. Yeah. Uh, if you have a stronger local ecclesiology, then people will think more clearly about what they should look for from parachurch organizations. The fact that parachurch organizations have found it very easy to supplant the church is indicative of a a fundamental weakness in the the culture of the local church. Mm -hmm. So this is a call to the churches then? I think so. I think so. And, um, And that takes some courage because some of these organizations very much present themselves as God's movement for the day. And if you don't buy into the, mess with God's the story they tell about themselves, then you can you can find yourself on the the rough end of the stick. Touch so not the speak. Lord's anointed. Absolutely, there you go. absolutely. That's why I'm happy so. to be here to tell you guys that you're so replaceable and right. not very important. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think as my um, my grandma used to always say in our little tea talks when I was little and we were done, she'd say, well, I think we've solved all the world's problems, yeah, Amy. we have. We have. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've done that once again with Hannah. I'm so glad to have had you on today. Yes, I was glad to be able to chat through this with you all. Yeah, and keep writing. Um, we're reading what you're writing, and we just love it. And I encourage our listeners to um, read Hannah's book, Made for More, and tune into her uh, podcast, Persuasion. Thanks for being with us, and please visit our website at mortificationofspin.org, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. If you want to hear more about our roles as male and female, head over to mortificationofspin.org and download Masculinity and Femininity Under God, a message by Elizabeth Elliott. And come join us next week for this conversation. I think the problem is is that some folks get so excited and, and rightfully excited about a redemptive historical preaching. I, I remember first learning about that. It's very exciting. But the problem is, is that sometimes we think, so long as I can show you how this text points to Jesus, then I've done my job. And that makes perhaps for a great lecture, but not necessarily for a great sermon. You have people in your congregation who may not connect the dots between the indicatives and the imperatives. But on the other hand, you also have to avoid reducing the gospel to the imperatives. That's next week. In the meantime, don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to read blog posts from Carl, Amy, and Todd, and to find your free download of Masculinity and Femininity Under God. I've been stuck behind a Prius for, you know, for 20, <laughs> 20, 28 miles. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you kick us off, Amy. This morning, yeah. uh, Am uh, I pronouncing your name right, Hannah? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm.
Just wanted to make sure that. How I'm else not. would you pronounce it? Hana. Hana. Like Hana. Hana. Because like my daughter's Hana. name is Solana. People right. call her Solana all the time. Hannah. I'll say Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I remember that. <laughs> Hannah. It's like banana. <laughs> banana. Exactly. Banana. Okay. <laughs> Tomato. Uh. <laughs> and it's wrath, not wrath. <laughs> so. Roth does sound better. <laughs> you guys can hear her okay? Yep. Yeah, I think so. And you hear us well, Hannah? Yes, I have great sound. Good. Okay, good. All right, well then let's get started. <laughs> 